Father in heaven, thank you for this time this morning. We ask that you open the eyes of our heart that we might receive from you. Lord, speak to us through your word and give us eyes that see and hearts that may receive. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray all of these things according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we are in Luke chapter 15, as Tommy read earlier. And one of the parables amongst these three is the most popular parable of all the Scriptures. Matter of fact, people who don't even attend a church have often heard the story of the prodigal son. But this story actually was meant to be told as a trilogy. There are, in fact, three parables that Jesus is giving as he is speaking. He's speaking to a group of people who have different perspectives on how God will come and how the Messiah might come, how the kingdom of God might be experienced. And today we have multiple different types of people, multiple groups of people who have in their minds or in their experiences how they should experience God, how God might be experienced. As Jesus was speaking here, some of the folks were quite frustrated with Him. They noticed that He not only is talking to, but He actually eats with those whom they would refer to as sinners or outcasts, so to speak. And this was not socially acceptable, and it had become not religiously acceptable, because when you would eat a meal with someone, you showed full acceptance, much like you would invite someone to live in your home. You would identify with them now, and they would identify with you. There were... Again, multiple groups of people. There were zealots in the audience. The zealots were people who felt like the kingdom of God would be ushered in if they took it upon themselves to do it by force. We must make it happen. We must pick up our swords and fight, and fight against the Roman government and all those who would cause us to be pushed back or not enjoy the full breadth of our religious freedom and our experience. We must do it by force. Yet there were others who were the Essenes who believed the answer is we must remove ourselves completely from the culture. The culture that we live in is so tainted and so sinful, so to speak, that what we need to do is start our own community, a compound, if you will, so that we might completely devoid ourselves of any outside influences. There were the Pharisees who believed, you know what, if you would be just be religious enough, if you would just obey all the laws and the traditions that have been added to the Scriptures, and you will just follow them to the nth degree, then that is what will usher in the kingdom of God. That's what will give us a place at the table there were the Sadducees who said, you know what? You can't beat them, join them. We will try to maintain some semblance of faith and religion, but when it is not advantageous, we'll simply compromise. And then there were also the Samaritans who had kind of been kicked out, kicked away from the table and basically told not to come back because of 
they had developed their own faith, so to speak, or their own methodology of Judaism because they had intermarried and they had attacked the Jews earlier in, in history and they had just caused so many problems that now you're just completely eliminated from acceptance. So you will always be an outcast and on the outside. And then there were those who were simply disillusioned. Those who didn't know what to believe anymore. Those who didn't know what to expect. Those who just said, I don't know. I hear lots of messages and I hear lots of things, but I'm just disillusioned by it all. Jesus is speaking here to this crowd of people who would have been represented by the groups that, and the viewpoints that we just listed. And Jesus said, let me tell you a couple of parables. Let me tell you a story. And He starts by telling the parable of the lost sheep. How a shepherd comes and recognizes that one of his sheep is missing. And whether they, he, was, they, he owned the sheep specifically or he had been hired, whatever the case, he was responsible for making sure the sheep was found. So Jesus tells a story of how he leaves the other sheep and goes and finds that one sheep who had simply gone off and followed his own instincts. He'd maybe seen a patch of green grass over here and maybe another, and before he knew it, he was just gone. He had left the security of the flock, and he had left his place at the table, so to speak. And so now the shepherd had gone and found him. And when he found him, he brought him back home. And then Jesus tells another story. He tells a story of a woman who had lost a coin. And this is probably a coin that uh, was associated with what we may now understand a wedding ring. Sometimes women, particularly women who had uh, had the financial wherewithal or their husband did, they would buy them a, a, a headband that would have ten coins upon it. Sometimes they'd have a bracelet or maybe even an ankle bracelet with these coins. And to lose a coin, first of all, aesthetically, it just didn't look right. There's a coin missing right there. If you wore it. But it was also uh, kind of something you would be ashamed of. And so she has a special sense of urgency to go and find this coin. This coin that simply was lost. This coin that simply had no idea that it was lost, so to speak. And so she goes to great measures. She cleans the house. She gets out the light. She looks everywhere until she finds the coin that was lost. And then he comes to the next parable. The parable of the prodigal son. A son who had grown up in a home where he had heard the faith, he had heard the message, he had heard the Scriptures, but he determines that he will willfully and painfully to the Father's understanding walk away from it all. I've asked Ron Moss, who is now part of our church, to come and share his story. And if you would, listen to him as he shares his story. Good morning. I thank God, and I'm, I'm honored to be here this morning to share my message of my life. Over the last several years, I've had an opportunity to minister with the Power Team and Team Impact and the Strength Team and go around all over the country and tell kids and tell parents the great news of Jesus Christ. But 10, 15 years ago, that was not the case. 
I was damaged goods. I was a messed up individual. There's a song from DC Talk that came out years ago called The Hard Way. And I was stuck on stupid. I had to learn everything the hard way. If you told me the fire will burn, I had to stick my hand in the fire to make sure it would burn. I grew up in a very religious home, but not a very Christian home. My dad was a very hard man. He was in the military, and he brought me up a Christian version of drill sergeant. Very, 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 very hard. I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted nothing to do with church. I wanted nothing to do with any of that stuff. I wanted to do things my way. I wanted to pursue the world. I wanted to have money. That was my goal. That was my idol. That was it for me. I wanted to prove everybody that I could be successful. By the time I was 27 years old, I had made seven figures. I'm driving Porsches, Vipers, living in a beautiful home. But I am miserable. Miserable. See, I want all the kids in here to understand something that right in the middle of your chest, it's like a little puzzle. Nothing fits in it. You can't buy it. You can't do anything to change that one little thing right here, and that's Jesus Christ. I tried to buy it. If I could get it, I would go get it. And when I bought it, if it didn't make me happy, I'd get rid of it and go buy the next thing. And go buy the next thing. Partying, meeting people that I never thought I'd ever meet, hanging out with people that I never thought that I would ever meet. But they were just as miserable as I was. And nothing that I did could ever replace that little thing in the middle of my chest. That was Jesus. But I had to come to that conclusion the hard way. See, as I was having a lot of fun and partying and enjoying my life, I met a lot of people that I thought were like my brothers. We were like this. And my wife kept warning me, She had no good feelings about these people. Stay away from them. And my response was, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. These are great guys. They love me. Little did I know that behind my back, one of them who was like Judas, my closest, my closest friend, I have given part ownership of my company, conspired to start to embezzle from me. And before I realized it, my head popped up and I was having such a good time, I had realized that he had embezzled hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And guess who was liable for that money? Me. Well, I thought everything was fine and tried to cover everything up. And little did I know that the FBI was aware of everything that happened. And they came and knocked on my door. Let me tell you something. God will forgive you, but the FBI will not forgive you. And I found myself in a real unique predicament. I found myself in a federal prison here in Dallas called Siegelville. And I was in a room that had the capacity of, of 40 men. And people were coming and going, being shipped out to different places. And it wasn't that bad because there was all kind of noise going on. It was busy all day long. But then God did a unique thing and kind of organized it in his own way where I found myself in this room by myself. And there's nothing worse than me, myself, and I time. And I had no one to talk to. I was in this gigantic center block room by myself. And it was that night, 2 o'clock in the morning, that God set me free. I was behind center block walls. And I had gone over my mind all the things that I had said, all the things that I've done. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I fell to my knees. And I asked God to forgive me, just like that prodigal son said. Forgive me, I've sinned against you in heaven. 
I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy. And in that prison cell, I felt him hug me, and my life was changed forever. I was more free in that prison cell than I'd ever been outside of that prison ever in my life. See, God is not about money. It's okay to acquire wealth, but when you worship it, when it is it, you're setting yourself up for a fall. He just wants to love you, and He wants to spend time with you. Nothing that you can ever purchase, nothing that you ever want to acquire, will ever replace Jesus Christ, ever. First Timothy 1.12 says, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord, who has given me the strength that He considered me faithful, appointed me to His service, even though I was once a blasphemer, prosecutor, a violent man, I was shown mercy. And He will show you mercy if you'll bow your knee and ask Him to forgive you. Thank you very much. Luke 15, the Bible tells us, and Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Today we're just going to focus in on the younger son. Next week we will talk about the older son. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, what he's doing culturally has a mammoth effect upon the father. He is basically, as the younger son, going and saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I want you to go ahead and treat me as if you were dead and give me my inheritance. And since he's the younger son, he will receive one-third of the inheritance. The older son will receive two-thirds. And he goes and says, Father, I want this. Now, this is a disgrace. And what is even more unbelievable than him asking is the father's response. Because the father says this, the father, so he divided his property between him. The word property that's used right there in the Greek is the word bios. And it's very interesting uh, terminology to be used here because what it means is life. So the father divided his life. The essence of who he was, his standing in the community, his position in life, what he was known as, he took his life and he divided it between his sons while he's still living. He who owned everything gave all that he had to his sons and became nothing. Lost his status in the community. The land was your identifying mark. Even today, my father owns some land in Louisiana, and he would uh, he's basically told us his sons, if any of us will move back there, he will let us have that if we'll agree to live there for the next hundred years. Uh, because it's been in the family for so long, and it's his identity. But in this uh, Mideastern culture, even more so. We see that even through the Old Testament. The importance of having the, the promised land, the holy land. It is the identifying marker of who you are. And so is true of this individual, of this man. But yet he willingly divides his life between his sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, all that the father had given him, and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living, which is actually the definition of the prodigal. Squandering what you've been given. 
He continues and he says, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went out and hired himself out as a citizen of that country who sent him to, to his fields and to feed the pigs. No one was willing to give him anything. His father had given him everything, but no one now would give him anything. The Bible tells us that so he went out and hired himself as a citizen and he sent him into the field of pigs and he longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. Um, John Bailey tells a story of how he... Uh, had a son who had become so rebellious and so unbelievably uh, angry and just belligerent toward his parents that he would no longer listen to anything they said and was constantly out, would not come home. And they finally said, you, you can't come back unless you're willing to live under our family rules. He was 17 years old, and so he, his son went out and... He hooked up with some musicians and began to live with them. And then one night, uh, John said he got, a, he got a call and he said, Your son's in prison. He's strung out on drugs. You need to come see about him. So he got up and he went to see about his son, Tim. And when he got to prison, they, he wasn't there at that prison. So he said, Maybe you ought to check the next jail. And so they went there. And he went to the, to the three or four jails that were in his city. And they didn't have any records. So finally... He got the address and he went to the house that he knew his son was living in. And when he went to the door, it was open. So he went on in. He found his son. His son was there asleep in bed. And he came and woke him up. He said, son, are you okay? And he goes, dad, what are you doing? And he told him briefly how he had gotten the call. And then he just prayed over his son, just told him that he loved him and said, you know, son, home is always open when you're ready to come back. And uh, he said, you know, it didn't really have that much effect on me, but as I thought about that over the next uh, couple of months, it really spoke to me that my dad loved me enough to not leave me like I was, but that there was always a place at home waiting for me. And there's that picture given to us that the Father waits and is looking and waiting and praying for the Son who has left home, for the son who's left his place at the table. And it tells us that, so he got up and he went to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. It's quite a statement because as the patriarch of the family, you would never run. It was a dishonorable Act. It was something that you would never do. It was undignified. Now, children would cer certainly run, and even teenagers, and, and it was even okay for, for, for women to run. But as the patriarch, as the leader of the family, this is not something you would have done. But here we see him again, not worrying about what the culture says, and running to his son. And throws his arms around him, grabs him, and kisses him. And the son says, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There's a Mideastern legend that goes like this. There was a father one time who had a son. And his son began to run with a gang of hoodlums, 
whatever kind of hoodlums and gangs they had uh, back a couple thousand years ago in the Mideast, but they would find themselves stealing and parting and just kind of sustaining themselves by, by stealing. And so one day they said, we want you to get us into your father's treasury, so we want you to lead us to his treasury, and we're going to take what belongs to your father. And so the son uh, finally agrees to do it, and so one night they go and they steal the father's valuables. And on the way out, the son trips and falls, and one of the hired hands catches him, but all the other guys get away. And so here is his son left to face his father, his home, his own father whom he's stolen from, whom he's dishonored. And everyone in the community knows about it. And they're, they're holding him. And uh, after a couple of days, the father comes to him and says, Son, uh, I'm going to have a banquet. And he says, Father, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. He said, I understand. I want you to come. I'm going to have a banquet for you. And I want you to come and participate in it. So the community is invited to come to the banquet. And as they're there sitting at the banquet, the father holds up a toast and says, You all know what has occurred. My son has stolen from me and now he has returned. I give him this glass in his honor. Son, take and drink. And he took the wine and he drank it. And he fell out dead. And each one in the community walked by and they nodded approvingly. And the father regained his status in the community because he was willing to sacrifice for the sake of his honor. Notice the antithesis of this story that many would have heard. As you see, here's the father who is willing to give up his identity and give up all that he had within the community and within his financial well-being and yet still run for the son. And he throws a banquet. And he says, quick, bring him the robe, the best robe. The best robe would have belonged to the father. And it's a picture of the righteousness of the father of full restoration and bring him my ring my sign of authority it's the way that we use credit cards today it's the transaction it's the mark it's your name and bring him sandals for his feet all sons would have worn sandals full restoration has been given to him and if that's not enough bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate Meat was considered a delicacy in this culture and in this time. And to have meat meant, man, you were really having something that night. But the coup de gras, the very best of the best, would be the fatted calf. When you've killed the fatted calf, it would maybe be at once, twice, maybe three or four times in your life at most. Maybe at a, a wedding celebration or something very, very significant. Because the community we would brought in and you would give this lavish delicacy as a picture of the highest form of celebration. And that's exactly what he does for the son who's strayed away, who's been lost, but now who has come home. And he says, For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. So let the celebration begin. All of that in spite of the heavy price the father paid. Maybe you're here this morning and as you sit here, you say, you know what, I, I've heard stories growing up. and Occasionally, maybe my family attended a church or I was read a story or two. But, you know, I've just kind of followed my own instincts in life. And 
I don't know that I've really ever really connected with the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're like that lost sheep. Or maybe you're like the lost coin. You weren't raised in the faith at all. I mean, you've maybe heard some stories and you know some basic principles, but as far as you're concerned, it all doesn't make sense and you don't really even understand. Today there's a place at the table for you. Or maybe you're like the prodigal son. You were raised in the faith. You know the stories. You know the gospel. You know the message. But you, at some point, chose to just walk away. You chose to go and live your own life and do things your way. And you know that God is waiting for you, calling for you. Maybe you wonder, do I even deserve to come back? I can tell you that there's a place at the table for you today. Part of the problem is we don't really sometimes understand who Jesus is. We've bought in as many of those in Jesus' day who listen to Him to a cultural aspect of who we think Jesus might be. Some of us have brought into the Republican Jesus that uh, who's against tax increases and uh, who values us having our own firearms and our own, our own freedoms and doing things our way and we identify with that Jesus, and that's the Jesus we're preaching and we want. Some of us, it's the Democrat Jesus. The Democrat Jesus who will reform Wall Street and reform Walmart and whoever else needs to be reformed, and that's the Jesus that I want to follow, or that's the Jesus that I've heard of. And some, it's the therapist Jesus that will help me feel better about some of the things I did in my past. Or the Starbucks Jesus, who we get together and have coffee and, and uh, drink the, the proper coffee and have conversations about Jesus, but then it just kind of ends there, and that's the end of it. Or the um, open-minded Jesus that, you know, I'm just open to whatever. Whatever your way is good, that's good for me. But uh, whatever you think, all ways are good. Or maybe the touchdown Jesus. You know, the touchdown Jesus who's on your team and will make sure you win and that your opponents lose because they don't know Him. Touchdown Jesus. Or how about the martyr Jesus? You know, Jesus died and boy, that was really a nice thing to do and we ought to really feel bad about ourselves and bad about all He's had to do. Or maybe there's the gentle Jesus. He sure is sweet and kind and sure is a nice guy. I don't want to be associated with a nice Jesus. Or how about the hippie Jesus? You know, how about we just all be open and just be at peace with each other? Let's just all get along. That's the kind of Jesus that I'm looking for is a Jesus that just help everybody to get along with each other. Or how about the yuppie Jesus that will help me to be financially successful and buy a yacht one day? The yuppie Jesus. Or maybe the I'm so spiritual Jesus that I'm anti-church, I'm anti-religion, I'm anti-tradition, I'm anti-everything because I'm so spiritual. Or the platitude Jesus. Um, You know, it sure is nice at this time of year, at Christmas and Thanksgiving, to remember that somebody gave us some stuff. And it's nice to know that kind of Jesus. Or the revolutionary Jesus, who's against uh, the government and everything that is going on in life. And I'm just against, I'm against, I'm against. Or how about the boyfriend Jesus, who just loves me and just is always sweet to me and never cares what I do. It's as long as I'm sweet to Him. Or the good example Jesus. You know, He sure sets a good example. It's not like my children to kind of be like Him. The good example Jesus. The truth of it is, the real Jesus, the Son of the living God, 
Not just another prophet. Not just another rabbi. Not just another wonder worker. He was the one that they had been waiting for. The son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. The one to deliver us from captivity. The goal of the Mosaic Law. Yahweh in the flesh. The one to establish God's reign and rule. The one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim the good news to the poor. The Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the Creator. Come to earth, the beginning of a new creation. Embodied the covenant fulfilled the commandments, reversed the curse. This is the Jesus Christ that God spoke of to the servant. The Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood. The Christ promised to Abraham. The Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites. The Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died. The Christ promised to David when he was king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as the suffering service. The Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared through John the Baptist. The Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is the Lord and God. He is our Father's Son, Savior of the world, substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. That is the real Jesus. Have you ever come to the table... Have you ever come to the table of the real Jesus? Regardless of what your background is, regardless of what you thought, today He invites you to come and to know Him and to receive Him. Let us pray. Father, thank You that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank You, God, that You love us so much that You gave completely of Yourself You sacrificed your identity and gave of all that you had through your Son that we might know you, that we might be able to come to the table and have a place. This morning, Lord, if there's one who has heard the messages but never really understood, I pray that you draw them. Lord, if there's one who really doesn't understand and no one's ever taken the time to explain the Gospel. Lord, if there's one who's wandered far away and needs to come and really experience the real Jesus, I pray that You would draw them. And Lord, for those who are in our influence, in our lives, God, that You want to use us, to use our prayers, to use our message of hope to share with them, to come and know You and come to the table, I pray, God, that You would lead us to do just that. And we'll give You all the praise and the glory. Amen.